Today's conversation is brought to you by CareNet. Since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, many are asking what's next for the pro-life movement. CareNet believes that the new goal must ensure that every child not only receives the gift of life, but has what Jesus called abundant life. In CareNet's e-booklet, Why We Must Be Pro-Abundant Life, you can discover how marriage, fatherhood, the sanctity of life, and the gospel of Jesus Christ form a holistic approach and provides a blueprint for the pro-life movement. Download your free copy at care-net.org, click on free resources, and choose why we must be pro-abundant life. How do we, as Christians, engage in politics without doing the bad stuff? It comes down to this. Are we out for Christian principle or Christian power? Christian principle is defending religious freedom for all people, for non-Christians included, for atheists and Muslims and progressives. Christian power is looking out for religious freedom for me, but not for thee. If we're going to be principled in our Christian engagement in politics, we need to work for our neighbor's good, not just for our tribal prerogatives. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and engage complexity with biblical clarity. Paul Miller, a committed Christian political theorist at Georgetown, joins us today to talk about Christian nationalism. What exactly is Christian nationalism? How is it different from patriotism? And and what is the role of members and leaders in the Christian community to address it? Listen in. Paul, your book, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism, is tackling a very complicated, even contentious topic. Uh, but you you come to this as a scholar, a uh, political scientist. You're also a, a veteran, a former White House staffer, and a person of deep faith. That's that's a lot of streams contributing to this conversation. As we get going, could you tell us a little bit about these different elements in your life and uh, how they brought you to study and write about Christian nationalism? Yeah, thanks for the question, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. And uh Appreciate the chance to, to share with your listeners a bit about the story and about the book. Um, so I'm a Christian. My wife and I are members of a Southern Baptist church in Virginia, just outside of D.C. I've uh, been a church going my whole life and uh, politically sort of conservative or, or rightward leaning for most of my life. But around 2015, 2016, I felt as if I didn't recognize uh, part of my country uh, anymore, you know, particularly I didn't recognize my tribe anymore, so to speak. I just felt like other people were responding to political events in the country, to the rise of Trump in a way that I wasn't. And I kind of needed to figure that out and understand why my mind and my heart was going one way different than the majority of the people in the pews around me. Um, and that was the kind of the origin of this book motivated, yes, by my experience, my own religious faith, and my love of country. I, You mentioned a bit about my background. I, I served in the Army. I served in the government. I worked in the uh, in the White House and in the intelligence community. So I, I care deeply for America, um, have spent a decade of my life serving and trying to protect this country. Um, but the, apparently the way I think about who we are as a country was different than many of the other Christians, again, that I that I was going to church with in the pews. And so that's what led me to research and write this book over a half decade. It, it took to really digest all of these issues and, and produce the book. So the term Christian nationalism is <clears throat> being used quite a bit, but um, 
it's almost as if the time that it's being used uh, and the frequency is not matched with the clarity of understanding of what exactly is Christian nationalism. So let's begin with the definition. How, how would you define Christian nationalism? So there's all kinds of flavors of Christian nationalism. It, it, there's a spectrum uh, of intensity and there is a kind of the ideological top-down elite version and there's the bottom-up uh, praxis of it. But I think the simplest common denominator for all types of Christian nationalism is this. If you think America is a Christian nation and the government ought to keep it that way, I think that's Christian nationalism. And it's important that you both of those things go together. If you just believe, hey, America is a Christian nation, if, if all you mean is a, major, a super majority of Americans profess Christianity, well, that's true. And so, if that's what you mean by America is a Christian nation, well, I agree with that. Um, and there's other, you know, if you mean in our history, Christianity is influential, of course that's true. But if you mean that our government has a responsibility to uphold, maintain, sustain, defend, enforce our collective identity as a Christian nation, that it should pass laws with the intent of sustaining that identity, that's Christian nationalism. How would you differentiate then uh, between sustaining identity as a Christian nation versus voting in certain ways or pursuing certain goods that have Christian values? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's uh, one of the more complicated questions that, that I, I encounter quite a bit when people, I want to talk with folks about the book and about these ideas. People want to know, can't I vote my values? Uh, are you saying that Christianity has no role in public life? Uh, aren't I allowed to pursue justice as the Bible tells me to do? Uh, of course, yes, we should pursue justice. Uh, God loves justice. We should emulate his character. Uh, righteousness exalts the nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We should seek the welfare of the city in which we've been called to exile. I mean, I, yeah, we could go on. Uh, obviously, we should pursue justice. That's a Christian value. Um, as we do so, we need to keep a few things in mind. Um, one thing to keep in mind is, is our history of not always correctly understanding our values. You know, a hundred years ago, uh, Protestants in America thought that they were pursuing Christian values by keeping Catholics out of public life. And, and that was a so-called Christian value for 350 years in American history. Hmm. So, we need to be real careful that as we vote our values, which is okay to do, that we're not interpreting our values in a way that violates the equality of law, that discriminates against another group, right? So, that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that sometimes the government's just not capable of actually enforcing the values that we want to uh, that we want to vote for. So, another example, 100 years ago, uh, American Christians got together and passed the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, this is prohibition, banning the sale and transportation of alcohol. And that was a Christian value. It was the value of temperance and sobriety. And it was a terrible mistake. It was a, it was impractical. It, it incentivized a black market and gang warfare in American streets. And so, we had to revoke it. So, today, we need to be careful and, and pragmatic about what government can actually accomplish. I, I worked for the government for 10 years and I have a very low estimate of what it can actually do. <laughs> so, as we vote our values, let's have a humble estimate of what the government can actually accomplish. The, the third and most important thing to keep in mind as we vote our values is, is there is a difference between 
uh, between the jurisdiction that Jesus gave to the church and the jurisdiction that Jesus gave to the state. Um, the, the church is the exclusive voice of Jesus to mediate right worship of him. The state has a pretty humble, uh, small jurisdiction to uphold order and a rough sense of earthly justice, and that's it. And so, we need to carefully discern which values we pursue through the church and which ones we pursue through the state. And that, that's a broad statement, but I'll kind of leave it there for now. Yeah, those three principles are, are very helpful um, because they give us both the responsibility to engage, live out our faith in the public square and the political process, but you're inviting us to do so with a measure of humility and self-reflection. And that that's that's critical and it feels like it's in short order nowadays and might in fact represent a Christian virtue, that the virtue of humility that is um, absolutely critical in our time. Uh, your answers also included references to history. You know, a hundred years ago, things were like this and the unintended consequences of um, that history. So give us a little bit of a historical genesis of Christian nationalism. So you could go all the way back to Constantine if you wanted to, uh, to tell that story. Um, there, Christian political theory is thousands of years old, and many versions and flavors of Christian political theory have, I think, unhelpfully mixed or mingled church and state in ways that I, th I don't think the Bible allows us to do. But if you're talking about a history of our current moment, of American Christian nationalism right here in the 21st century, I would probably go back to say the 1970s and the rise of the the, the Christian right. Um, and this is a complicated story because I, I think the, the Christian right was a mix of some of what I would call Christian republicanism, that small r, republicanism, which I would support. It's a Christian appreciation for the virtues of republican government, limited government, the rule of law, the value of life, uh, individual dignity, and the, and to the extent that the Christian right advocated for those things, it was a very good and helpful thing. I think we can also recognize, now with retrospect, that the Christian right was also the, the genesis of what is today Christian nationalism. Uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., when he wrote his book, Listen America, it's one of the kind of the manifestos of the Christian right, published in 1980 or 81. He was it's very clear. You can read that book and see Christian nationalism there, right alongside some other helpful things. Uh, he uh, uh, quoted Psalm 33, uh, 12, blessed be the nation whose God is the Lord, and applied it to America. He cited Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name, and applied it to America. Uh, he talked about how we as Christians need to maintain our virtue for America's sake, to, to uphold American greatness. You know, we should uphold our virtue mainly to please God <laughs> and for the sake of our own purity and holiness. And its effect on our politics is kind of incidental. So I think we can look back at the Christian right and see these germs that have grown into the seeds that have grown into uh, Christian nationalism today. Uh, how would you tease out then the difference between Christian nationalism and patriotism? Again, there's these threads in our conversation talking about uh, virtues and we should be, you know, voting yeah. our values, uh, republicanism with the small yeah. R. Yeah. Um, and your own life history as a veteran, as someone who's worked in government, clearly there's patriotism there. 
So how, how, what's the difference between nationalism and patriotism and how do we foster what is best in, in patriotism? Yeah. So with patriotism, patriotism is the love of our, our country and our home. I think patriotism is actually a positive virtue and everybody should be patriotic, no matter what country you're in. I think patriotism is the virtue of gratitude. We should be grateful for where we come from for our homes. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he writes about the love of the things that are familiar for the sights and sounds and smells of where we come from. Uh, and I, I think I agree with that. I think that we should love and be grateful for and seek to cultivate and improve where we came from. And so uh, I, I hope all Christians find a patriotism for whatever country they're in. Uh, and, you know, in, in America, I think that means loving and cultivating what is best about America. Um, and again, that's different from nationalism, which seeks to defend one specific identity, a cultural identity, uh, that we must follow a certain kind of tribal template. Another way to get at the distinction that, that, I've, that you've asked about now a couple of times, you know, how do we as Christians engage in politics without doing the bad stuff? Mm. It comes down to this. Are we out for Christian principle or Christian power? Christian principle or Christian power. Christian principle is defending religious freedom for all people, uh, for non-Christians included, for atheists and Muslims and progressives. Christian power is looking out for religious freedom for me, but not for thee. Mm. So if we're going to be principled in our Christian engagement in politics, uh, we need to recognize that we, we need to work for our neighbor's good, not just for our tribal prerogatives. Mm. The power dynamic that exists, um, the exercise of power, you know, in, in our experience on January 6th, included expressions of violence. Um, help us understand, you know, what was going on on January 6th? Is that the height of it, the end of it? Is there more to come in your estimation? Lots of things going on on January 6th. It was a confluence of a lot of, I would say, uh, radical or maybe even extremist streams on the right that go back decades. There was some outright white nationalism there. Uh, the protesters yelled some racial epithets at the police officers. There's also a long strand of sort of libertarian anti-government activism in American history that also was present on January 6th. But without a doubt, there was also Christian nationalism on January 6th. The worship music, the Christian flag, the prayers, the crosses on public lands. And the most telling thing for me is that when the leaders made it into the Senate, they stopped to pray. And one of the protesters yelled out, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. And in the prayer, he prayed, thanking God, the opportunity to be there because, and this is a quote, this is our nation. Uh, it, it was as if they were reclaiming American identity for them as Christians by violently storming into the building the way they did. It was an act of reclamation, of, of possessiveness, that we Christians have a proprietorship over America, that we get to say what it means to be an American. That was very much there on January 6th. Um, your question, was that a one-off or do we have more of it to come? I wish I had a crystal ball. Uh, I, I, I fear there's more of that to come. A lot of it will depend upon what happens in 2024. Um, and I, I don't want to, you know, 
I, I hesitate to say too much about this because I don't want to spread an atmosphere of doom and gloom and also kind of engage in that um, civil war fantasizing that some people do. I, I want to stay away from that. I'll just say, as a scholar who has studied other fragile societies, I, I'm concerned about some of the warning signs I see. Hmm. Um, let's focus then on the warning signs, not the prediction of doom and gloom. Right. Uh, and not the prediction of what will happen in the election, but um, the things that you note as warning signs so that we could be confidently prayerful, that we can be engaged with civic virtues that reflect um, Christ-likeness. So yeah. let's let's put it in the terms of a call to discipleship, the, these warning signs, rather than yeah. uh, a doom and gloom prophecy of civil war. Yeah. No, th thank you. That's uh, that's a helpful way to rephrase the the conversation. So one the key warning sign that it's it's nothing new for me. This is no big insight, but the deep polarization. And there's all kinds of metrics that can show we are deeply divided. Um, we even live in separate enclaves for the most part. The big sort that's been happening for twenty years. Um, there's a an interesting social science finding. If you, so if I believe, let's say, let's say I believe in gun rights, but now let's say I get together with 20 friends who also believe in gun rights. Over time, the 20 of us will become more extreme in our belief and defense of gun rights. There's this dynamic of in-group homogeneity. When, when you all believe the same and act the same, you sort of gravitate towards a more extreme version of what you believe. Mm -hmm. And that's happening on both sides. The right is becoming more extreme right, the left more extreme left. Uh, because we are shielding ourselves from each other. We, we, we can now choose our news outlets. We can live in neighborhoods where everyone, and we go to churches where everyone's like us. COVID accelerated that, where people shifted to congregations where, of their preference. So here's my, I guess, my child, my discipleship challenge. If you are going through your daily life, your work, your school, your church, and you never encounter many people who are that different from you, who don't who don't believe different things than you, you might be part of the problem without even knowing it because you are part of a group that is homogenous, that is all the same. And in that sameness, you may be unconsciously becoming more, uh, more, more radical, even extreme in what you are believing without realizing it. it I, I, I teach students from all over the world. And so I'm constantly, constantly bombarded with difference. And so I'm a especially hypersensitive and acute to the benefits of being around different people from all over the world who believe and argue different things all the time. Uh, and uh, it's just easy for me to see that and recognize it. Maybe different for others. So I would just encourage and exhort people, hey, look, go seek out people who disagree with you and have conversations and ask them, what do you think about the 2024 election? Sorry about my dog there. Uh, just, just ask him or find a, a neighbor who's a Muslim or an atheist or something else and say, hey, tell me about your beliefs. By the way, that's a great evangelistic opportunity by just inviting the conversation. Uh, so seek out people who are different than you and have the conversation. That's dangerous. It feels threatening in the sense that, well, what if I discover I'm wrong or what if my mind changes or is that a expression of a compromise on our convictions? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to some of those concerns? Because 
you know, older generations might look at younger generations and, and, and see, wow, they're losing their convictions about their faith because of the pluralistic society that we live in. So shouldn't we not insulate those types of influences? And we can understand that with, say, um, sexually provocative material that seems to deteriorate, uh, you know, pornography that deteriorates the moral fabric of our, our children. Could not the same thing be said about infections of views that are different from ours that seem threatening? I'll give you a couple of counterexamples. Uh, we've all heard of the, the Amish uh, who live up in Pennsylvania, Ohio. They live a very, their communities are very enclosed and sheltered. But they do this thing where children who grow up in the Amish community, before they're allowed to join the community as an adult, they're kind of kicked out and they're given a year or so to live outside the community in the world so they can see what the world is. And then they can make the choice to come back and join the community, understanding what they're what the, the, the full cost of their choice. Uh, I think there's a wisdom in that to mm. really encounter how other people live differently, right? So that's one example. Another example is just look at Jesus. He partied with tax collectors and sinners, mm. right? He went to where they were. He didn't shield himself and his, presumably took his disciples with him to go talk with the tax collectors and the sinners uh, because that's where they are. If you want to love your neighbor, go to your neighbor. Don't just hunker down and shield yourself in your house. Go to your neighbor so you can love them. Um, it's true that we need to, I've got three kids, and there, there's a, a degree of shielding we need to do, as you pointed out, for some of the things that are just not appropriate for kids. But as they grow, that shielding, we start to drop it, right? Mm -hmm. Two of my kids are now teenagers, and we're starting to kind of drop some of that shielding so that as they venture forth, it, we all know the statistics about kids who grow up in Christian homes lose their faith. I don't think it's because they weren't shielded enough. I think it's because they weren't given training to encounter and respond to the world before they're suddenly on their own. Mm. Kids, young adults, they need that training, uh, which means you need to drop the shielding a little bit. Give them an exposure to the world, but give them training and discipleship in how to respond. Okay, let's draw that one out um, because you've uh, exhorted us to find someone who is different. Um, you've exhorted us to trust that uh, our convictions would be proven. Um, but you've now introduced this, but we have to disciple people if we're going to engage in these ways. What does that kind of discipleship look like? We know what it might look like for, say, uh, dating relationships and marriage. We have marriage curriculum, premarital requirements classes. We know, you know, after marriage uh, enrichment seminars to keep romance alive or conflict resolution practices. So we have a fix on what discipleship might look like when it deals with marriage and relationships. However imperfectly we do, we have some sense of that. What what kind of discipleship is required for our civic engagement? What you're describing? Yeah. Um, you might have just described my next uh, chapter of my life. I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> um, there are some ministries that are trying to do this. The one that immediately comes to mind, and I'm not formally affiliated with them, but I've just, I'm encountering some of their material. It's called the the After Party through the uh, Redeeming Babel Ministry. And the After Party is precisely this. It's a, As I understand it, it's a curriculum that is designed to disciple people in their political lives and their political weakness. It is not partisan. It is not saying you got to vote this way or that way. Um, it is really just 
trying to teach Christians about a kind of a biblical political theology, a biblical cultural engagement, uh, emphasizing the need to love your neighbors as you do these things. Uh, because I think that's often what's missing. We we engage politically, culturally, as if we're going to war rather than seeking our neighbors flourishing. Um, and so, yeah, I think the discipleship we need is to recenter our political, cultural engagement on, the, on, on neighbor love. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for mentioning something so concrete as the the after party. Um, I think about our own own material for the health of the nation, and both in its written and video form, and it's interesting packaging uh, with material like the after party uh, that can give this robust discipleship. Um, I, I, I want to take a, a couple of clicks back and get the big picture again. Um, you you've stated in your book that. Christian nationalism is not only anti-American, but it's also anti-Christian. It not only threatens the fabric of life navigated in its pluralism, but um, it threatens the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, How would you encapsulize both of those things? Yeah. The first thing I'd say is, uh, just to clarify, I would say Christian nationalism can be anti-Christian. I think that Christian nationalism really does exist on a spectrum, and a lot of it is um, mainstream, popular, peaceful, bad, but uh, could be worse. I'll put it that way. Um, I do think that at the extreme end, the idolatrous forms of Christian nationalism can be quite clearly anti-Christian, because it involves the worship of America and the worship of a certain conception of what America is supposed to be, and it involves conflating the kingdom of God with America uh, as if we are the last best hope, not just for freedom and equality, but for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you really believe that, you've lost hope in the rest of the world, and that is nihilistic Hmm. uh, and deeply wrong. Um, So, in that sense, Christian nationalism can become uh, anti-Christian. because, yeah, our, our Christian witness should focus on the kingdom of God, the person of Jesus, and our hope in him, uh, not on any earthly kingdom. Um, I think in a, in, a, in a different way, it can be anti-American. By what, and what I mean by that is it can be really <laughs> against the tenets of the American creed, the Constitution, the Declaration, uh, that all are created equal. When I think about what it means to be an American, I think of the Constitution the Declaration, and our story of living it out. And nationalism, Christian nationalism, defines American identity not by the creed, but by the culture that gave it birth, by the Anglo-Protestant culture that gave the creed birth. And in that sense, they really denigrate the creed. They think the creed is not intrinsically important. It's only derivatively important insofar as it came from our Anglo-Protestant culture, which is what they really care about. But if you care about the culture, you don't actually understand the creed at all. You don't understand that the creed needs to be the dispositive uh, factor defining who we are as a people. Otherwise, it's worthless and meaningless. That's the sense in which I say it can be anti-American because it denigrates and downgrades the creed, which is at the the, the core of who we are as a people. Mm. I know that as um, a son of immigrant parents, one of the things that was deeply inculcated in me was an appreciation for what we have in America, that they had left their country uh, precisely because 
in America, there was something represented about possibility, freedom, uh, dignity of people from various communities. And um, that's that's essential to this notion of who we are as America. Um, and that's worth being patriotic over and, and profoundly, again, as, as a part of an immigrant family, profoundly grateful for that vision of um, a, a nation whose values shaped, as you mentioned, by Christianity includes the dignity of people, such as my parents who yeah. sacrificed much to come to this country. Um, you know, um, Paul, when we think about this upcoming election, Again, there are all sorts of things that might give us deep, deep concern. Um, but what should give us hope? What are the things that as followers of Jesus ought to be um, grapples, you know, that grappling hooks that we, we can hold on to uh, for the hope that we have in Christ? I think that we need to hold on to the, uh, the knowledge that the um, the church, the the church is worldwide. The church is transcends time and culture and history, and so the church will survive. The kingdom of God is coming, and the church will survive, and Christianity will survive, no matter what happens in this election or the next one or the next one. Hmm. Uh, Christianity is not dependent upon America. Uh, I you know I think Donald Trump said that, that the Democrats are going to hurt God. He's he's not that vulnerable, <laughs> and so I think we can we can relax a little bit. We can relax a little bit because because Jesus will defend his church and vindicate his people. One little election here or there is nothing is nothing in the grand scheme. Now, now I'm emphasizing the grand uh, eschatological hope that we have. If you're asking about hope in the near term, I, I may have a more pessimism to share with you. Hmm. Uh, as I said, as a scholar who studied fragile societies, I, I see the warning signs, and I and I, I'm deeply, deeply concerned. Um, you know, I, I, here's another Christian value. I think the U.S. Constitution uh, is a, is a good thing. It was produced by by men steeped in Christian wisdom that protects uh, the rule of law uh, and equal dignity. That's the Constitution as amended uh, protects the equal dignity. And so, when I vote. In this election and the next one and the next one, I'm thinking about where, how can my vote protect the Constitution? Uh, and I'm, I'm, I don't know that there's many policymakers in D.C. on either side that are thinking in those terms, that are really passionately devoted to protecting the Constitution. I think it's imperiled. I think it's fragile. Uh, I worry uh, that our age of cynicism, disinformation, polarization... Uh, is is uh, is fraying our constitutional order, and I and I don't want to know what comes after that. So that's my deep concern, and I pray that American Christians would join me in seeking to protect and defend our constitution above all. Hmm. Well, interwoven in that hope is this prayer that you've offered to us—a uh, prayer that we would preserve all that was best in the wisdom uh, of, of the founding of the country and our constitution. And thank you for that. It provides a guide uh, in this season that we're entering into. Our guest on today's conversation has been Dr. Paul Miller. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Paul. Thank you. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. 
Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.